I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timph. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 1st, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. Republicans are giving more choices in the presidential race against former President Trump with more contenders to come. They're having to differentiate themselves from Trump, but also talk about a lot of the policies and ideas that made him popular and got him in the White House in the first place. And Lisa Brady. Something worse than COVID is coming. A warning from the former head of the CDC, who says we're not ready. I do realize that there's a high probability that I won't be successful and that our nation won't wake up to the threat until after we have the great pandemic. And I'm Greg Jarrett. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden says he hasn't been paying much attention to the Republican presidential race so far. I haven't been able to keep up with it. It's moving so quickly. And, uh, you know, I'm not being facetious. I'm being very serious. I haven't focused on it that much. It seems a lot of competent candidates are trying to get the nomination. So we'll see. A lot of Democrats say they want an alternative to the president, but there's no sign yet he'd be willing to debate any challengers. Meantime, former President Trump's in Iowa for campaign meetings in a Fox News town hall tonight. He's been on the attack on social media against his closest competitor in the polls, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a week into his presidential campaign, counterpunching, not always mentioning Trump by name. It's not about entertainment. It's not about building a brand. It's not about virtue signaling. It is about results. There are other Republicans trying to gain traction in the race. As expected, former Vice President Pence, Fox confirms, is going to run. So is New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, also jumping in next week. Chris Christie's interesting to me in that he was really close to Trump. You know, he helped with debate prep. He was planning for Trump's time in the White House. Politico national political correspondent Meredith McGraw. Now he has become one of the most outspoken critics of Trump. He's called him a coward. He's called him things like a puppet of Putin. He is not afraid to take on Trump directly. And that's something that Christie says is lacking in this current cohort of Republican hopefuls. They, he, he thinks that they're all too afraid to take on Trump directly and that if they do want to beat him, they're going to have to start attacking him head on. And, and that's sort of what he plans to do with his campaign. Is this a kind of political kamikaze mission, a murder-suicide where, you know, Christie is just going to try to take Trump down and might go down with him? I don't know. But um, he he certainly seems to think that getting in is the the right way to Um, move the party away from Trump. Yeah, I mean, Christie ran in 2016 when Trump was running the first time and didn't get terribly far. Um, I don't know the history, you know, Hillary Clinton and maybe some others notwithstanding of people that didn't, that were losers and then came back very strongly. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. And, you know, there is still such a big chunk of the Republican Party around 35%, 30% that are truly Trump's base that will stick with him, that are loyal to him no matter what. So the rest of the field right now is really trying to work with that remaining group of voters who might have some Trump fatigue, might be ready to move on and start considering other candidates. But that's not to say that Trump himself isn't also trying to appeal to those folks right now, too. I mean, the thing about primaries and caucuses is that that 35% is often plenty to win. You don't need to win 50% or 51%. You just need to get more than the next guy. And is there any way that 
that number falls enough for somebody to get on top of him? That's that's a good question. I mean, it's something that DeSantis's team is aware of and talking about when they met with donors and gave presentations down in Florida. My colleague at Politico, Alex Eisenstadt, reported that that's something that they were talking about. They said, you know, that they understand that there is going to be this cohort of Republican voters that are going to be with Trump. It seems like an unmovable block. Um, and so they're they're really trying to to work with that that other group of voters. Is it causing a fundraising problem? Are some people going to keep their wallets shut because they just don't know where to put it yet? Or is DeSantis already starting to consolidate some of that? Well, we definitely saw some hand wringing a few months ago when DeSantis was really flipping in the polls. You know, six months ago, if you'd asked me about this race, it seemed like DeSantis was going to be the front runner. Um, Trump wasn't doing so hot in the polls, but then it did a total 180. And a lot of these heavy hitters on Wall Street, deep pocketed Republicans were throwing millions, have thrown millions at candidates before were sort of like, wait, hold on. Maybe DeSantis isn't the guy. Maybe he's not ready for prime time here. There are questions about, you know, if he had the kind of personality to really make it through the challenging gauntlet that's the Republican primary, you know, glad handling with people and, you know, um, having to show off your personality and, and move around these different states. You know, we have seen some big sort of brand name donors, if you will, uh, line up behind candidates. Um, so I can imagine that we might see some bigger checks start to be written, uh, especially as the field really starts to be crystallized. And it seems like next week with Christie getting in, Mike Pence expected to get in, and even this uh, North Dakota governor saying that he's going to be making an announcement, we really could see sort of what the the full spectrum of the GOP primary field will look like. Yeah, I know New Hampshire's governor, Chris Noon, has been kicking around the idea too. Um, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is running as a Republican. He's banking that voters will appreciate him being nice and being optimistic. Do you think there's an appetite for that? You know, it's something that voters say, right? And Tim Scott really has tried to take on this sunny, optimistic, conservative vision, a la, you know, Ronald Reagan. And he has not taken the kinds of swipes at his opponents, including Trump. And there could be something to that. There was a CNN poll that came out, I think, a few weeks ago, where Republican primary voters were asked how they feel about candidates going after Trump. And most of them said they didn't like it, um, that they didn't like when they went after other Republicans. And so, you know, that there could be something there. Maybe these voters see that, you know, if they all start attacking each other, you know, they could sort of self-cannibalize the field, if you will. Yeah, uh, I, we know Chris Christie is going to be very direct in his opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, DeSantis has said he'll, he'll counterpunch against Trump attacks. At some point, if you if you dance around it and you don't hit back, does that sort of look like a tacit admission that Trump deserves to win? I think it's all so complicated because Trump is able to kind of run as an incumbent. His policies, the stuff that he did in the White House, you know, all of them had gotten behind bits and pieces, if not all of that, while he was in, in office. And um, so they're in this tricky situation where they're having to 
differentiate themselves from Trump, but also talk about a lot of the uh, policies and ideas that made him popular and got him in the White House in the first place. Meredith, let me ask about the Democrats for a minute. Um, A couple of people, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marion Williamson, are polling, to me, remarkably high against an incumbent president. I don't know if people answering those polls um, really know or care that much about Kennedy or Williamson or if they're just, you know, sort of if it's a protest vote such such that it is uh, and that they'll come home to Biden in the end. What do you what do you are you surprised by those numbers? I am. You know, when you're seeing RFK Jr. at, you know, 8 percent, Marion Williamson around, you know, the same polling around the same. I mean, those are numbers that are beating basically everybody in the Republican primary field. They would love to be at that point right now because a lot of them are polling around 1 percent. So it is pretty remarkable. Um, But at the same time, I think it's a direct reflection of just how weak President Biden's polling numbers are. He has kicked off this campaign with just around, I think, 30 percent or so saying that they approve how he's going about the economy. Well, his job approval numbers are down and just a lot of skepticism, too, about his age and whether or not he can actually handle this and do the job. So I think RFK Jr., obviously, the Kennedy name is helpful. Um, Marianne Williamson, you know, she's this self-help guru that's been around for a long time. Um, But still, it is pretty remarkable how high they're polling, but it seems to be a direct correlation to just how rough Biden's own numbers are. Yeah. And even if those, let's say those people who are saying, I'd rather have Kennedy or Williamson or whoever else may come along, they may not vote for whoever the Republican nominee is, but they may just stay home. And is that enthusiasm gap a problem in states like Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania? You know, that 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 is a good question. You know, how much does that impact how whether or not people come out and vote for Biden? I mean, the last time we saw an incumbent get a challenger was George H.W. Bush being challenged by Pat Buchanan, the sort of like populist right wing guy. And Buchanan didn't get enough support to take down George H.W. Bush, but he certainly like hurt him enough that Bill Clinton beat uh, Bush pretty soundly. If uh, Kennedy's been pretty visible since announcing his candidacy, Williamson, maybe a little bit less so at some point, could they possibly damage President Biden just by highlighting what they might do differently? Definitely. But I also think it's what they might do differently, but just being there to say, hey, we think this guy is weak enough that we're here to to be on stage and try to challenge him. I mean, that in and of itself um, is not a good look. Uh, party unity is something that we've I've heard a lot of Democratic strategists, you know, talk about um, uh, that, you know, they they really just need to be able to rally the troops here and make sure that the, the party is one cohesive force, especially if they're going to be um, going up potentially against a Trump or DeSantis. Yeah. Meredith McGraw is national political correspondent for Politico. Meredith, good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks so much. This is Greg Jarrett with your Fox News commentary coming up. We don't hear nearly as much about COVID these days, with life largely returning to normal, at least on the surface, 
and mandates for masks and shots falling by the wayside. The COVID vaccines remain highly effective uh, to reduce the risk of serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre is the national public health emergency over COVID expired in May. But the many effects of COVID will linger. 57 percent of voters in a new Fox News poll say the pandemic has permanently changed how we live in the U.S. And while two-thirds think the virus is now completely or mostly under control, nearly one-third remain concerned about it. Others are concerned about what's next. I think so far there's been over 40 million egg-laying chickens that have been euthanized across the country. Eddie Vortman is one of the egg farmers hit hard by avian flu. Staff from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently meeting with Southeast Asian leaders about ongoing global outbreaks in wild birds and poultry, spilling over to mammals and, in rare cases, human infections. Some health officials are worried bird flu could evolve into a pandemic, and at least one is warning the gain-of-function research is how that could happen with bird flu or a different virus. He's calling for a moratorium. You know, Lisa, I've uh, been concerned about this ever since... Uh, 2012, when the European scientists published the changes that one needed to make in bird flu in order to make it highly pathogenic and transmissible for humans. Former CDC director Dr. Robert Redfield. Normally, we have a species barrier which can help protect us from new zoonotic diseases becoming significant human pathogens. But when one uses gain-of-function research, you can really get around that species barrier. And you can change the organism so that you can, as we've as you've seen with COVID, that organism is really extremely infectious for humans. So I think it's uh, the premise that the supporters of gain of function research that we need to do this to be ahead of countermeasures and for therapeutics and vaccines. I, I really don't think that's a valid argument. I think with the technology that we have today, we can develop countermeasures very, very rapidly and. Uh, I just think it's uh, not thoughtful for us to be highly engaged gain-of-function research. I'm still on record believing that the current COVID pandemic was a consequence of -of gain-of-function research and science and not a consequence of natural spillover. To the extent that it may have started with a lab leak, one senator, Kentucky Republican Rand Paul, has said that a former high-ranking CDC official told him they expect there will be another leak and that as much as half the world's population could die in another pandemic. Do you have similar fears? Well, I think the the position that I would take is that we're going to have another pandemic. And I've taken the position that I think the next pandemic is what I call the great pandemic. I consider the current COVID pandemic as kind of the lesser pandemic. And the great pandemic will be bird flu which will uh, learn how to infect humans and then learn how to be efficiently transmitted to human to human. The species barrier, I think, could prevent that from a long time. But in the presence of -of gain-of-function research and the fact that the papers were published in 2012, which depict the exact amino acid sequence changes we need to do to change that virus so it goes to a 5 to 50% mortality in humans, I think is, again, one of the strong reasons I think we need to have a moratorium on gain-of-function research on a global scale. There have already been some human cases of avian flu, rare cases, 
not human transmission so far, correct? Um, are we already That's heading right. for a bird flu pandemic, though? Is, is the door already open? Well, we sure have it in birds, you know, and, and you've seen the economic cost of that to the poultry industry, turkeys and chickens on a global scale. Uh, the fact is there's a number of uh, mutations that need to occur for the bird flu virus, whether it's H5N1 or H7 or H9, there's a variety of them that are currently circulating in birds, uh, but they're very inefficient in infecting humans. And when they do infect humans, the human doesn't transmit to another human based on the way the virus is now. But with those mutations, if they occur, then that virus could gain the ability to have a significant bird to human transmission and then human to human transmission. That's the pandemic that is going to make people look back and kind of wish that we had the COVID pandemic again, because again, the mortality is going to be substantially greater than COVID. There have been reports that the U.S. stockpile of H5N1 shots is not nearly enough. What can you tell me about the status of that stockpile? Yeah, I would say that we don't have adequate vaccines stored for H5N1, not only the amount of the stockpile, but also the vaccine that's been stockpiled, uh, how well it works. I will say that one of the advantages of the mRNA vaccine strategy that was developed and operationalized during COVID is the ability to make a new vaccine for a bird flu uh, when it occurs is something that when I was CDC director, I used to, you know, really worry about because uh, traditionally prior to mRNA vaccine development, it would take maybe six to 18 months for us to have a vaccine. So what you would do in the interim is just do a body count. Now we can develop a vaccine really relatively quickly, uh, but you are right that we are not prepared for the bird flu pandemic when it comes. We don't have the countermeasures stored to the degree we need. If and when the time comes for a bird flu vaccine, how many people will take it? Johns Hopkins University professor and Fox News medical contributor Dr. Marty McCary says there's massive distrust in public health right now. There is a group of people in the United States that will not take any novel vaccine now that is developed and promoted by the CDC, in part because they feel that they've been lied to about the COVID-19 pandemic. And in fact, when you look at the claims of public health officials and the actual scientific data, people were lied to. One of the greatest propagators of misinformation on COVID-19 was the CDC itself, ignoring natural immunity suggesting that everybody was at equal risk when now we know that the riskful difference between a young healthy child and an older uh, comorbid individual was a 10,000 fold difference in risk. So people have a right to be skeptical right now. I hope we can restore good scientific methodology and we can make recommendations based on not group think and wear positions like a political badge but instead based on the evidence from good clinical studies. Are you hopeful that trust in the scientific community, at least for those people who lost it, um, can be restored without something drastic having to happen, like a high mortality rate? It's going to take a big apology. You know, I'm a practicing physician, and I can tell you, we physicians have a long experience with getting things wrong, making mistakes, having to explain to somebody that, 
things didn't go the way with their care as they should have. And what I've found, Lisa, is that when you are incredibly honest with somebody, they can be very forgiving. They just want that direct honesty. And right now, they have not gotten it. People have a right to be skeptical. I think public health officials need to come clean and be honest, or we're just going to need a fresh group of individuals to start making recommendations that uh, are free of the baggage of the previous public health leadership that was not straightforward. The former CDC director, Dr. Redfield, says he thinks the biggest mistake was not allowing honest debate, faulting the media in part for that. He also says we need some changes in preparedness strategy. My own view is the national security of the United States and the way of life that we all have is much more threatened by biosecurity than it is by the traditional concerns of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, and that our nation ought to invest proportional to that threat, and we haven't. We don't have a serious integrated strategy to defend our nation from biosecurity, and we need to develop that. The reality is, as someone who's tried to sound the bell here, I I do realize that there's a high probability that I won't be successful and that our nation won't wake up to the threat until after we have the great pandemic. And then our nation will wake up to the threat. But this is a real threat. Uh, We do have an opportunity to get prepared. We're currently unprepared. I mean, I ran the CDC, which is the premier public health agency in the world, and we're just woefully underprepared uh, to have a meaningful uh, program in biosecurity. And so it is a very serious concern. Um, I don't believe our national security biodefense strategy belongs in HHS, and I was part of HHS. I do believe it belongs in the Department of Defense. And and I do think hopefully our nation will see the value over the next uh, several years and begin to build what I consider a comprehensive biosecurity national defense strategy, which will fully engage the full capability of the private sector to be part of it. I think this kind of feeds into everything you've said about that, but but broadly, are there lessons we have not learned from COVID, mistakes that were made that were in danger now of repeating? I mean, there's a number of mistakes that were made, but I think that in my view, the biggest, biggest error was an aggressive attempt not to have any honest debate. There was an aggressive point of view to come out with a single point of view. And there was a tendency, and the media played a huge role in this, which they really squelched any honest debate. You either agreed with the party line, largely that was pontificated by certain uh, public health spokespeople, or you were considered a conspirator. I mean, when I suggested that the COVID pandemic originated from a laboratory that was educating the virus to infect humans and it accidentally leaked, You know, I was aggressively uh, canceled for raising that point of view, both by the media, but sadly, even, you know, by the scientific community, which was really antithetical to science, that they wouldn't even have a debate about it. Everyone had to get on board that they believed that this virus had to come from natural spillover. Otherwise, you were a conspirator. So I think the biggest mistake was to not allow honest debate and not allow uh, sort of truthfulness to the American public to tell them the truth of what we know and what we don't know. Uh, We didn't have to suggest we knew more than we knew. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the second mistake is we were, and we still are today, we're woefully unprepared for a, a serious uh, pandemic. We're woefully unprepared. And, uh, you know, a lot of people believe that COVID was going to be like SARS and MERS, and both of those pandemics really fizzled out pretty rapidly. So no one really jumped in to realize that this was going to be a significant pandemic that's not going to fizzle out, and COVID is going to be a significant viral threat, uh, you know, for the rest of time. Uh, luckily for us, its mortality rate's more like 0.1%. But bird flu, when it hits us, is going to have a mortality rate at least of 5%. Former CDC Director Robert Redfield. Sounding the alarm. Thank you, sir, for your time. Yeah, Lisa, thanks for having me. God bless. Meet the American who... Earned the Medal of Honor and was MIA in Korea for 73 years. U.S. Army Corporal Luther Herschel Story, a hero of the Korean War, was killed in 1950 but identified just weeks ago. Story earned the Medal of Honor for his incredible bravery in the Korean War, but his remains were unidentified for 73 years. He's finally just returned home a hero on Memorial Day 2023. Story was born in 1932 in Marion County, Georgia, to a family of poor sharecroppers. He enlisted in the U.S. Army at the age of 16. His mother, Florence, signed the papers for the underage enlistee. At age 18, Corporal Story was killed in the heroic last stand battle of Naktung Bulge in 1950. He earned the Medal of Honor for his ferocious fight. Story's remains were never identified. On her deathbed in 2017, his sister Gwendolyn gave her DNA to Defense Department officials in the hopes that they might find her brother one day. Corporal Story's niece, Judy Wade, was shocked to learn that this past April, her uncle had been identified and would soon come home. He has always been a hero to me, she said. Medal of Honor recipient Luther Herschel Story was laid to rest with full military honors on Memorial Day 2023 at Andersonville National Cemetery in Georgia. Back in 1951, Corporal Story's parents received the Medal of Honor for their son from Omar Bradley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His niece said they thought he was lost for good. Today, she said she feels like he's with her and helping her do that for him and share his story. She attended a wreath-laying ceremony earlier in May at the Korean War Veterans Memorial. There, she was greeted by President Biden in honor of her uncle. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Greg Jarrett. What's on your mind? I was barely a teenager when one summer day I plucked a single volume off my father's packed bookshelf. The biography told the story of the finest trial lawyer who ever lived, Clarence Darrow. I admired his passion for the law, his unyielding commitment to civil liberties. He dared to confront prevailing beliefs. He opposed the demands for social and religious conformity. Darrow battled against government intrusion on individual rights. These revered principles were suddenly in jeopardy during Darrow's most famous case, the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, an evolutionary misconception 
that humans evolved from monkeys. Two years ago, I was granted access to the archives of the courthouse that still stands today. I obtained the original trial transcript on which my book, The Trial of the Century, is based. What I discovered is that America might be a very different place were it not for the courage of a young school teacher and his defense lawyer nearly a century ago. They challenged in court a popularly enacted law that sought to suffocate scientific learning and freedom of speech. States banned books on evolution. Tennessee made it a crime to teach Darwin's theory in public schools on the premise that it might conflict with the story of man's creation in the Bible. A young teacher, John Scopes, was promptly arrested and criminally charged. William Jennings Bryan, the great fundamentalist leader, joined the prosecution team to convict Scopes. Clarence Darrow was incensed. He volunteered to defend the 25-year-old schoolteacher who was under siege, and the ensuing trial became the biggest legal blockbuster of a generation, the most heralded courtroom drama in 20th century America. At stake are freedom of speech and academic autonomy. The most dramatic moment came at the end of the trial. Realizing the judge and jury were against him, Darrow did something extraordinary. He called the prosecutor, William Jennings Bryan, to the witness stand as an expert on the Bible. This set the stage for the climactic moment when Darrow face-to-face challenged Bryan's interpretation that everything in the Bible should be accepted literally as written. Darrow's cross-examination was mesmerizing and bold. He dismantled the veneer of his adversary's belief. The more Brian fumbled, the more he fanned himself in the searing heat. Sentiment in the crowd shifted. Derisive laughter only inflamed Brian's panic. Darrow's relentless prodding, his inescapable logic, destroyed his nemesis. A broken man just days later... Brian lay down for a nap and never woke up. The New York Times described the epic showdown as the most amazing court scene in Anglo-Saxon history. Darrow's seminal defense of free speech and scientific acceptance helped form the legal bedrock on which our civil liberties depend today. These cherished principles are as relevant now as they were nearly a hundred years ago when a young schoolteacher and his legendary lawyer fought for the indispensable proposition that no one should be told how to think. It truly was, as the title of my book states, The Trial of the Century. It's available now in bookstores nationwide and online. I'm Greg Jarrett for Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night.